Welcome to the Drunk Guys Book Club, where books aren't just for school, where book clubs aren't just for women, and we're going to make these beers disappear. I'm Mike. I'm Nate. I'm Jimmy. And we're the Drunk Guys, and this week we are reading Invisible Man by H.G. Wells, <laughs> uh, by Ralph Ellison, who it's actually Ralph Waldo Ellison, yeah. is his actual name. Waldo. And I was like, that, like, Ralph, like, like Emerson? And then there's like, yeah, his parents like... They're like, that name's close enough. We're going to name you after Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> and I'm going to write a book that's almost another book. He has, a, he has a shtick, and he almost finished a second book, but almost. he didn't. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which is a 1952 novel. Shocking spoiler. Very little invisibility. Much more in Harry Potter. A lot of man, though. There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ratio of invisible to man is, is not what you hope it would be. It's like 80-20. All right, and I'm starting with a beer. <laughs> this is The Dreamiest by Other Half because this book felt very dreamlike in the way that things just, it, it sort of made sense, but also not really. There's some it kind of went from stuff. random thing to random thing to random thing. And he has dreams about his grandpa. Yes, he does. This is a Oat Cream India Pale L by Other Half. It's uh, 7.8% alcohol. And it's very nice. But is it dreamy? Is it the dreamiest? Well, I don't know what dreamy tastes like, so I can't really judge that on an <laughs> empirical scale. Well, quick, go to but sleep. But <laughs> it could be. It'll put you to sleep. <laughs> if you drink enough of them, I'm sure. It, it might need more than one for that. How strong is it? So two. 7.4. 7. 7.8. 7.8. Oh, at least 400 of those. So, Invisible Man is a 1952 novel by Ralph Ellison. It's his only, it's the only novel he completed in his lifetime. He wrote other things, like essays primarily, um, but this is considered one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, and is certainly going to be on any, like, long, long-ish list of books you need to read. So we can cross that one off, gentlemen. We read this. I feel accomplished. I do, because the first quarter of the book was rough, dude. It Holy shit. It was difficult. Difficult. The whole thing was difficult, but the first chunk was, I was pretty sure I'd never finish the book. Let's save that for the end. Let's go through the plot, because then we're going to have to spend the majority of our time trying to figure out what actually happened. (laughs) Uh, And it's not a mystery. (laughs) (laughs) So much happens in this, we couldn't possibly go over all of it. But sort of two things that, that are going to keep coming up is the idea of the invisible man, though unlike the H.G. Wells, he's not actually invisible. It's more like people don't recognize him for they don't see who he really is. They they see what they want to see. He is invisible. What people want to see is what they see. That's kind of like oftentimes he kind of gets mistaken for other people or like, all right, aren't you this kind of person or aren't you that kind of person? That's going to come up over and over again. And sometimes he does say, oh, it's because I'm an invisible man. But it happens way more than that. Second thing that is sort of like frames the, the book, you could say, is he's going to kind of visit different elements of society, like different parts of society, mainly black society, and sort of, you, you could call it the... It doesn't take place in a specific year, I don't think, but you could call it, say, the 1940s-ish, you know, in that, in that like mid-century, in that mid-century time period. Though this did come out just before Brown versus Board of Education and then the Montgomery bus boycott and Martin Luther King becoming a national figure. So all of that hadn't happened yet, but the book came out just before it. This is a book that if you just go in 
without knowing much, it's almost impossible to understand. It would have probably made more sense back in the day because of stuff going on for people that lived then. But one thing I found out later when I looked up what the fuck was this book about, a lot of it is kind of not a, not an argument against, but like a commentary on and an argument against the teachings of Booker T. Washington, who at the time was going, was a big dude. And his, his viewpoint was, we're not going to struggle politically to get equal rights to white people. It's not going to happen that way. What we've got to do is better ourselves through education and vocational training and economic stuff. And that way they will see us as equals. And what this book is like, is like, nah, son. So knowing that kind of helped a little bit more with understanding what the fuck was even going on. So there's a lot more than just criticizing Booker T. Washington oh, yeah. throughout this. Oh, yeah. That's just one facet. So let's go through the plot. It starts off... The, so first off, the narrator has Who no name. Does, does not have a name. And even halfway through the book, when he gets... He's given a name by the Brotherhood. It never even, it never even says what that fake name is. He says, oh, and here's your new name. And I saw my name on the card they gave me. But it never actually says in the book what the name is. It, so. it was kind of comical at a point after like all the... Like, especially later on when he's working in the factory for about two minutes. And... The guy's like, what's your name? And I said it, but then a pipe made a noise. And then I was like, wait, what was it? And then I said it again louder, but then, you know, a different pipe squeaked. It's like, it's like comically, like, like, no one can hear, even hear his name. That's, as Nate said, that's going to be a thing. So he starts off, he's a college student at a HBC that is unnamed. Well, it starts off before that. Oh, well, yes, you're right. So the it's book is graduation. told in first person. It's, it's a, the fir- book is written in first person, and he's sort of like, saying all these things that happened to him but the very first chapter is him saying i'm an invisible man and i'm stealing all this electricity from con edison just to put a ton of light bulbs in my apartment um my underground secret apartment my dad worked for con edison that would be his nightmare (laughs) the motherfuckers stealing our light bulbs but and then he's gonna say oh in here, he, he doesn't even quite say it, but then he sort of goes back in time to the beginning of all of this crazy stuff that happened to him, starting when he's just graduating high school. And all right, yeah, yeah, this is like the first. All right, so like the opening thing is like, oh, he's living this like weird hermit life, life like Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> like <laughs> I live in the trash and I steal things and I hate everything. And you're like, all right, whatever. Let's see how you get there. And then it goes to this bizarre scene, the battle royale where he is, he's delivering his, like, valedictorian speech, basically. He was said they, he gave a good valedictorian speech when he graduated high school, and so they, he was invited to give, a, give that speech to basically all the white folks in the town, and then they say, and here's when the book starts to get really weird, and it's still only, like, page seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you're here, you might as well take part in our, in, in the battle royale we're having. Which is literally basically like a big boxing match, but it's not, you know, one-on-one. It's just like everybody. But first, there's a naked woman. Yeah, there's a naked, a naked lady. white lady, right? Naked white, white lady. lady. And all the guys are looking at her, and they're making, they're making noises because everybody clearly wants some. Everybody wants some? This is clearly everybody wants some from oh. Against the Grain. And it is a hazy boy, spelled with an I. India Pale Ale. All right. I've, I've been to Against the Grain. It's in Louisville, right? It's a, uh, I think it's in Kentucky. I went there on that, like, a journey. It was down there. 
And uh, it's an awesome place. Really good barbecue and pretty good beer. But uh, Yeah, Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. Louisville. You got to say it like you have a mouthful of goat testes. There's actually, when I was there, there was like a giant, well, it's actually your cousin's testes, but there was a giant billboard thing that had, it said, Jimmy's cousin like, is a goat. Louisville, or like Louisville, and then it was, so they said that, and then it was like, Louisville, like the phonetic pronunciation, like Louisville, then Louisville, like all the different local ways of saying, it. you're like, all right, I guess they're all right. Yeah, because no one there can read that sign. Uh, so, <laughs> so this is, it's surprisingly bitter. It says it's hazy, but... It's actually quite bitter, but it's still pretty good. Or maybe just because I haven't had a bitter one in God knows how fucking long. But it's interesting. It's not what I expected at all, but interesting. Against the grain. They've got some good stuff. We've had a few of them, not a huge amount, but a decent amount. Yeah, they have pretty wide distribution. They make a wide variety of different styles. And uh, I've never had anything bad. The, the only thing I had that was like really horrendous that I didn't like of theirs was their Imperial Stout. They did this series and i bought a few bottles when i was there and each one had different shit added to it and one had grape jelly that was gross like imperial smoked porter with grape jelly was the grossest i I dumped that out (laughs) (laughs) sorry but everything else is great this is Uh, just a better ipa i don't think there's anything weird in this one this hazy boy is a hop lover's dream featuring the juiciest hops and all the lupulin haze you need lupulin is the chemical and hops that gives it its deliciousness well it is it's way more bitter than juicy i'd say but oh well good shit anyway well there's a lot of bit, a lot of bitterness in this book yeah, and, oh, yeah it's uh, all about bitterness to an extent definitely so they're watching this like lady writhe and they're like we don't know how to react to that we're 18 and she's a white lady and we're black young men in the south this is her and surrounded by wealthy powerful white men like this is a humiliating experience and then they're like all right cool enough of them titties Fight. Put on blindfolds and go fight each other. Yes, right. They're blindfolded. So they're literally, so it's literally all the, I guess, the young black men of the town, or a whole bunch of them, like, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, something like that. They're all literally fighting, but they're all blind. They'll boxing gloves on, I guess. Uh, and they're all, um, they're all fighting. And then the main character, the narrator, gets to the final two, and then they're fighting, and then they're fighting, but it's, then it's a little bit more like a boxing match. I think. Can't remember who wins. No, I think he gets knocked out. But anyway, he pays. He's fighting the big guy, and he says, "I'll give you money if you just like end it, or if you They're like, please just stop. Yeah, just please make this end. I'll give you the five bucks that we win." <laughs> and he's like, "Nah, I'm gonna fucking win for. Risk. I'll give you ten dollars. Just please stop hitting me." Uh, and then after the fight is over, they sort of like clear the clear the ring, and the white guys the white the people watching it put a what is it a rug out in the middle and then put money and coins out on it and then it's like okay everybody can just dive in and grab as much money as you want and the rug was electric was like it was going to electric not like the electric slide (laughs) i immediately (laughs) thought that too (laughs) the electric rug so basically they got a shock as soon as they dived for the money and everybody laughs and blah 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 and the only like the gold coin that the narrator ends up picking up from it after getting shocked is um it's fake it's like a token to ride the trolley or something yeah. like that it's not even money it's like stupid fake money and then he does give his speech as his mouth fills with blood <laughs> yeah <laughs> he can't even get through the words and this yeah. is the point in the book where you're like all right what the fuck is this 
and you're literally still only 2% of the way through the book. There's yeah. still so much book. more. It's a lot of It's like a 600-page book of weird shit at, at times. I would frequently have to go back a page or two and think, did I, did I miss something? How did I get to this point? Like, oh, it just happened. Okay. Especially the first quarter was especially disconnected yeah. feeling. Maybe, maybe you just get used to it. The first few events are all like complete non sequiturs of just insanity. Then he ends up at his H, the yes. historical well, black when college. He gives his, when he gives his speech, they give him a briefcase, and inside the briefcase is a scholarship to a black college state school. Oh, yeah, that, that, that briefcase that he carries, the whole goddamn book. Which is, of course, a metaphor, like every single fucking thing in this story. Tons of metaphors. So he goes off to college. It's like a meta five. <laughs> God damn it. Okay, it took me a second, but I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? Okay, uh, so he goes off to college, and you skip all the parts where he's like doing college stuff. It just happens, and then you you, you kind of jump ahead to... It's like junior year. The, the book year. jumps ahead in time to, I guess he's in his third year of college, and he's been assigned to drive around to one of the founders of the college, which is this sort of rich white guy who was given a whole bunch of money and but named Mr. Norton. And Mr. Norton asks to see the former like slave quarters, which is still like the black area of the town. They are in the South. Doesn't say where specifically in the South, but um so maybe the book takes place earlier than the forties. Well maybe I guess it could be the forties. But there I mean, are it's, it's, there it's, are older it's people specific, that are that were born slaves occasionally. Like much later on in the book, when he witnesses the eviction, there's the guy has like the freedom papers. In the, in this scene he runs into those vets back from the war, so it might be like the twenties. Yeah. That yeah, might be maybe more the 20s. Because there was like no really world war going on that would have fucked up all Later they do talk about Marcus Garvey, who was Already dead by the forties. I want to say he was he was earlier. So perhaps it is the twenties, though it really isn't specific. Wasn't he like king of Liberia or something like that? <laughs> Didn't he? What, I, what no Marcus I think Garvey he was did. deported to Liberia. Yeah, like he had no. Or he, he left Liberia. for I, Liberia. I think he's from Jamaica originally. Yeah, he was. That's all I know about him. Well, he was like black nationalism was his thing. That's all I know. <laughs> we did our research, guys. Don't worry. Um <laughs> So Mr. Norton is the guy, and I'd like to think it was uh, Ed Norton or whatever his name is from The Honeymooners. And he's like, oh, uh, or I Ed do Norton, see. the actor. It's Ed, yeah, and he's, but he's like dressed like it's American history. It's very uncomfortable for everybody, <laughs> and he's, and he's like, show me where they, show me where the where the colored folk live or something, you know, real dated sounding. And he's like, okay, I'm a twenty year old young man. I have no idea Gotta how to do what the rich guy this. Says. I was told to take him around. And he takes them, and then they meet like the most ridiculous people, <laughs> like the guy who's impregnated his daughter and his wife at the same like, time, at in his sleep, <laughs> allegedly. Like, yeah, uh, it's like yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> like, I think we do, sir. Have you no decency? And so, and then Mister Norton's like, oh well, I need a whiskey. <laughs> like, <laughs> also, he spends a lot of time remembering about his hot daughter who died. That was too real. <laughs> and so then the narrator is like, all right, let's go to the local like juke joint. And they go to this, you know, pretty. It's a whorehouse. It's, yeah, it's a pretty slummy place. It's yeah, like run down and shitty. Whiskey to go. <laughs> whiskey to go. To drink it in the car. It was a car. simpler time. <laughs> He's not driving. If this was prohibition, then, you know, there were 
there were no laws. I mean, there were laws against, you know, brewing alcohol, but there are no laws specifically about, you know, who could sell alcohol or not. So anyone was selling it was like, whatever. They let kids drink. Didn't matter. There were no laws. Do whatever you want with man. Don't worry. There's no seatbelts in that car. <laughs> yeah. It's like a libertarian paradise. It's your own life in your hands. I told you Jimmy this joke. Live free and die. That die and die. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, uh, Nate, did you, I did tell you this uh, libertarian knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? Get a warrant. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so he takes him to the whorehouse, and I, I, one of my favorite named characters in all of literature, Supercargo, is, <laughs> <laughs> is, is like the big diesel guy and then like he gets instantly knocked out in a bar fight and they just put him on the bar and like rest their drinks on him (laughs) they're like this is where you took the benefactor of the college and then the whores take him up to the like balcony to fan out yeah (laughs) so this this scene is bizarre because i didn't know like what the tone was like it's very funny now but in the first reading you're like what is happening this is just weird and ultimately, he takes him back to the college, and then he gets totally chewed out by Drew Bledsoe, the uh, the president or the head of Ms. the college, Doctor Bledsoe, and yeah, the main character then gets expelled. Yeah, but he doesn't know it. But he doesn't know. Well, he gets he does get expelled, but he gets the doctor sent away for a little while. And says like, "Oh, well, you can come back, you know, in a year or something like that, or come back." He said, go, oh, go to New York for the summer. Go make money to earn to, for your next semester's pay uh, tuition. And I'll give you some letters of introduction to people there to hopefully help you. And, the whole, and there's also this old long thing explaining why is he being expelled. And the, guy's, and the narrator rightfully is like, I kind of just did what I was told to do. Like, what did you want me to do? And the guy goes, and it's like, it's way more complicated than that, dude. You are a black man in the South, and it's like 1930 or whatever it is. You can't show, like, they're giving, we can't show these rich white people, like, the degenerates. Like, that's the guy, like, really basically calls the, I mean, the whores and the daughter fuckers and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> He's like, you're an idiot. Like, we, we show them what we want to see. You lie to them. You trick them. You play stupid. You just, you can't, show, like, we're trying. And they, this, this felt like the Booker T. Washington kind of thing. Like, we're trying to be perceived a certain way, and you're fucking that up for us. Mm. You can't, you're going to ruin the college. And then the pre- president said something really ridiculous. He was like, and my position is important. I fought to get here. He says, and I'll have every black person in the South lynched tomorrow if it means I keep my position, or something to that effect. Yeah. He might have used more colorful language. What? <laughs> okay. And I think here another theme that gets introduced, like if this book is about black, the black experience, and I guess civil rights to some degree, and the various efforts to achieve him pointing out that the the inter black conflict that existed you know like that that exists yeah is another thing that this this character is introducing that it's not quite so simple as black people want to be treated well and white people aren't treating them well and and all the black people feel one way like it's actually way more complicated because of course people are there's a lot of talk on this about like the this guy and like his grandfather what before he died told him about like basically like being a race traitor. His grandfather was known around the town for basically acting the right way, which is being very differential and saying, yes, sir, yes, please. Letting and, men half your age call you but boy. Then, 
Yeah, but then the grandfather, when he's dying, says that I was a traitor to my race. And everyone is like, what are you talking about? And then he dies. <laughs> and then that kind of, that's going to kind of come back, or the narrator is going to think about that later. Often. It comes yeah. back in little blips. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, he gets expelled, and he's given this, like, maybe you can come back if you do good up in New York. Here's some letters. Don't you goddamn dare open these letters, because these are important men. And they and, and so he goes, and he delivers the letters, and, you know, over a couple of weeks, hands them to secretaries, et cetera, and then they kind of never set up a meeting, and they all cancel, or they're like, oh, we don't have any openings, until he finally delivers the seventh letter, and he delivers it to this other guy, and he's like, he opens it, and he's like, you don't want this job. <laughs> like, fuck, like, fuck hell, I do want this job. That's why I'm here, you idiot. And then they have this big back and forth, and eventually the guy shows him the letter. The guy was trying to, like, protect him somehow. And the letter says, like, this guy is unhirable. Just kind of string him along <laughs> for a little bit because we can't have him at the college. He will ruin everything. Thanks, Dr. Bledsoe. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That was not helpful at all. That was actually worse than if he gave him nothing. <laughs> like Dr. Blitz is a real cunt. And actually, you know, I, I hadn't had a beer yet, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna. This could work here. I had a. This could work in many places. He's like, Dr. Blitz, why are you gonna be such a dick to me? Aren't we? We are all made of the same stardust. <laughs> this is a beer I wanted to drink, and uh, I found a reason. And it's our podcast. And if you don't like it, start your own. Which we should say, by the way, speaking of starting your own pockets, this one's brought to us by our friends at Patreon. If you head on over to patreon.com slash drunkguysbookclub, you can support the podcast financially by giving us your non-tax deductible money to get crazy rewards like shout it out in our monthly book poll, voting in that book poll, of course, exclusive content, early access, and even tangible physical goods. So head over there if you are so inclined. This is We Are Made of the Same Stardust, an imperial milk stout by Carl Sagan. By crossing it, made with billions of hops. Uh, <laughs> no, this is uh, an Imperial Milk Stout from Treehouse. It has a whole uh, whole long spiel here. Uh, it it doesn't. Uh, it's brewed with chocolate and bananas, and it and it never it's like mentions doesn't mention Carl Sagan, which is disappointing. But I'm gonna make contact with it. <laughs> Are you gonna, oh, this beer is out of the cosmos. No, this is, uh, this is actually Jody really Foster. I'm drinking a Jody Foster's after. <laughs> <laughs> There's a pale blue dot in here. No, so um, <laughs> get it out, fish it out. Gross. <laughs> this is a, this is great. Uh, Treehouse is really known for their IPAs. This is a imperial stout from them, and I think the strongest one I've had for their of theirs, or just about that, wasn't put in a um, wasn't barrel aged. Uh, it's excellent. It really does taste like a chocolate banana kind of pastry stout. Wonderful. Easy to understand, unlike this book. So uh, the, the narrator gets a job at... Well, a, the, the guy who's like trying to hide it from him is like, I'm really sorry. Go to this place. You'll get a job here. And that's where the narrator goes the next day. And he gets a job at a paint factory making white paint. And I have to think that's symbolic, the fact that he's oh. making... He's working at a factory making the nicest white paint. That's and all, all that's the people used who work by the government. Black. It's like the biggest government contract is this white paint. And their slogan is basically, if it's white, it's right. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the slogan, which you later find out was made up by the, a black employee, is if it's optic white, it must be right or something like that. Because optic white is the name yeah. of their And also paint. he makes it by putting a little bit 
of black stuff into it, which is, you know, yeah, dope. I don't know what the fuck. I don't know how paint is made. I don't know if this is like a realistic thing, but that's got to be also some kind of like, ah, of course, we're all, I don't know. It's, It's definitely a metaphor. What it is, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, and uh, I, this is where I'm sure uh, if anyone listening is like a high school English teacher, they're just their spidey senses are tingling and like, oh no, I could, I could string that shit along for four lessons. That's just <laughs> well, fucking Ralph Ellison was a college professor for basically his entire life, wasn't he? Like he wrote this book, and he was just a English professor, literature professor, for the rest of his life. You know, on and off writing little things. So this is what happens when English teachers write books. Everything's a metaphor. <laughs> At the factory, the sort of notable the thing that happens to him is he's like there only for about one day. It is exactly one day. One day he, <laughs> he barely sort makes of it back from lunch. Fucks <laughs> up his first thing. Like I told you, like I I said I was going to give you the signal. You're supposed to like pull the lever or something, and he doesn't. He screws that up because he doesn't understand the signal because he's never made paint before. Uh, and then he gets sent down to the boiler room where the old black guy is like he feels like he's in charge he's almost he's basically like a janitor or something but he knows how to run the boiler and so it's his little fiefdom and then he's told well okay go 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 get your lunch it's lunchtime go get your lunch yeah but i left it in the other building okay go over there and and get it so he goes over there just to like get his lunch out of the break room and then there's a union meeting that started and all the union guys are like he's a fink meaning he's going to, like, spy on them. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know there was a meeting. And they, like, go on and on, like, not seeing him for who he really is, but what they sort of want to see or, or you know, are suspicious of. So they yell at him for a while, and then eventually he leaves just to go back to the boiler room to eat his lunch. And the, jan- and the janitor guy is like, what took you so long? Well, I got there, and there was this union meeting. Are you a, a union guy? You're a union guy, I can tell. Get out. Get out you're now. fired. <laughs> Yeah, Don't you're fine. Like, get out of here. And also, not seeing the main character of her, who he really is. He's just kind of a guy who's like, it's just my first day. I'm just trying to figure out how to make paint. Um, <laughs> another thing about the book is that for, for a lot of it, the main character doesn't have a lot of control. The main character isn't choosing his own actions. It's almost like things are just kind of happening to him. And he's just kind of like along for the ride is like the way a lot of the book goes. That's less true in the second half. But in this first half, all this stuff just happens to him and he doesn't have any control over it. Because he could barely get a word in edgewise. And every exchange, he gets cut off by people. Cause, and it's like they get dimin- they like diminish in power, sort of. right? It's like the professor, head of the college guy, who's like, that's his fucking world. And then later on, it's like uh, the the dickhead guy in the first part of the paint factory who you yells at him. You the paint wrong. You put the How other did you find which dope? Like, this one smelt the same. You don't go by smell all, you fucking idiot. And he's just like <laughs> so mad. And they, it's like, dude, you gave the worst directions. Uh, and then you get the, the Lucius it like Blackford or Blackburn. Bro- broad? Broads? Broadway? Uh, something, uh, something like that. He's only in the one scene. Uh, so then he... Like that guy has less power, and then there's this important switch that happens here where Lucius is like, "I'm gonna kill you if you don't get out of my boiler room." <laughs> and, <laughs> like, oh, them's fighting words in the south. <laughs> and then the narrator's like, "You know what? Fuck it, old man. I will fight you." And they get into a fist fight. And at one point, he's like, 
that son of a bitch stabbed me in the back while we we're like tumbling. He's like, oh no. You find out later that he bit him <laughs> and his dentures fell out. <laughs> and he beats the shit out of the old man. And then he's like, all right, listen, I'm not in the fucking union. I was getting my pork chop sandwich. Chill your titties. Let's just make some paint. Let's move on. And he's like, all right, cool. But then instantly the, the man has sabotaged him. He's like, and one of the pipes explodes well, and knocks. Like in The Shining, he wasn't checking the gauges. Yeah, that was his old job. Was like, check that gauge and tell me when it gets high. Like, that's this is a bad system. Um, we could really use a lasts. union here or something. <laughs> <laughs> or OSHA regulations. No, that's, that's the, that is the perfect union job. One guy to look at the gauge <laughs> and another guy to turn it down. <laughs> That's Teamsters uh, HVAC, <laughs> but he uh, they he like sabotages him. And the guy like laughs like I got you, bitch, and he leaves. And then the room like explodes, and he gets hit with paint, presumably. And he wakes up in a factory hospital. The factory hospital. That scene goes on for way too long, where they basically treat him like a human experiment toy. They're like, oh, let's lobotomize him. Let's cut his nuts they give off. Him ele- electrotropic therapy for for what? Like what? Just cause was it even for? Like, hey, the paint exploded all over him. He's primered for this treatment. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and again, he like doesn't. He also doesn't know what the fuck is going on here because he's waking up out of like a concussion coma. And then <laughs> as he sh- sh- starts to realize, like, what's going on? They're like, Shh, don't talk now. This is not, sh- shut up. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, Simon didn't say talk. And then he just. <laughs> Okay, I'll just sit here and be quiet. And he's in like a coffin, basically. Like a weird glass box <laughs> that they put him in. It's not even on a bed. And then eventually, like, all right, you're free to go. And because, like, listen, this is not the job for you. <laughs> no shit. But the company is really nice. They're going to give you compensation as long as you sign this waiver of relieving them of any responsibility. He's like, all right, I'll just come back to work tomorrow. Like, no, no, you can't work here anymore. You need to find like less strenuous work than the industrial world. That's what the guy keeps saying to him. You just got eleven concussions at once. Your brain and is then electroshock large. therapy. They had to shock it back into a solid. So then he leaves, and he ends up. And this is thirty percent through the book. By the way. <laughs> yes, there's still so much more. He finds a place to stay. He passes out on the train, and a lady's like, "I'll save him." And it's Mary, and he stays with her for a while. A lady named Rambo. <laughs> Mary Rambo, yeah. She's like, oh, no, he's drawn first blood. Let me help him. And he stays with her, and she has like a boarding house kind of situation. Like she rents rooms out in her Harlem apartment. I really don't understand how that worked. And she has like Some a Harlem old, boarding uh, house. Uh, apartments out there? Airbnb. Like uh, those, those old apartments, like the Brownstones out there, they're pretty big. Like even yeah, now, nowadays. Now they've all been chopped up into like 400 units, but yeah. maybe back then it was different. It's like, hey, Arnold. Yeah, exactly. They all live in this, like, they're all impoverished, you know, first-generation immigrants in this tenement, but they have 2,000 square feet for some reason. <laughs> and he's the only boarder, pretty much, at this point. No, there are other ones, because he's, I think so. Well, yeah. he mentions he mentions that she has boarders. I don't know if, you never meet any. It doesn't matter. He stays there for a little while, but he can't find any steady employment. And he kind of, for a hot second there, is like a mumbling, crazy person on the street, like he's just kind of wandering around and talking to himself, buying yams, eating street yams, which has got to be difficult. That's the good old days. It's not really a, it's not really a handheld mobile food. I liked the uh, the guarantee of the yam salesman. It was like, 
first off, it's 10 cents for a yam, and it's like covered in syrup and butter. I'm like, that's a good deal. And he's like, if that's not the best fucking yam you've ever had, I'll give you back your dime. <laughs> like, that's, a, that's just inviting people to lie. Like, actually, I did have a better yam once. Uh, and then he's like, I'll take three more yams. And he just eats yams like, walking down the street like a gentleman. But then he stumbles into this other scene, which is really important for him, when there's a whole crowd of black people watching as like a marshal and like two moving men are emptying out someone's apartment. They're evicting them. And they're evicting the apartment of this ancient black couple. They're in their 80s. And everyone's it's still like, working. <laughs> yeah. Like they're not retired. They're just like trying to survive. And they're being evicted. And the dudes are heartless. And the crowd is giving them a hard time. And it's tense. And the narrator, it is so awkward to not have a name for him, by the way. The narrator. Hard to explain the book, yeah. He like uh, he tries to con- it is like Fight Club yeah and he is Booker T's unsuppressed rage in this scene <laughs> and he tries to calm down the crowd because at a certain point they're like you know what fuck it let's beat the shit out of these guys and not hurt these you know old people who are like tr- they want to go back and pray or something and they're just dis- their shit's being thrown out in the s- snow it's this heartbreaking scene it's like something like Ebenezer Scrooge would get a bone or two <laughs> and <laughs> they <laughs> toss them out. Yes, yes, and the snow, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, he, he uh, like, clearly shit's going to go bad. He's like, he goes in to try to stop it, but then he becomes this like fiery minister type guy and just riffs and does the speech and wraps up the crowd and gets them in a frenzy, and they beat the fuck out of all the white guys there. <laughs> and, just, and they move and, the like, furniture back in. Yeah, they just like, fuck that. And you're like, well, that escalated quickly. That was... I don't know what he intended, like, because, but also this is like the first time he's actually spoken more than a, a sentence to anybody. Yeah. It's like he had this like built up in him, and he unleashes this torrent about, you know, we're supposed to be the law abiding people, and you know, again, like a very, perhaps a Booker T. Washington kind of criticism. This is published in like fifty two, right? So it's like right at the dawn of the civil rights thing, but really, there's no you know civil disobedience yet, and there's not any, not much widespread coordinated civil rights actions action so i don't know who else he could be criticizing by saying you know this whole spiel here pretty much but i'm not an ex i really not yeah close to an expert on this topic so then he gets approached by brother jack, jack. which brother brother jack of jack, jack hoff <laughs> of the brotherhood and I have to imagine this, and this is going to be like pretty much the whole second half of the book uh, of the Brotherhood. They have to represent Zoroastrianism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> you might be right. Can you support that with the text? It's, it's communism, isn't it? It's the big commies. Anyway, so he's like, he gets approached by Brother Jack and says, you should join the Brotherhood. We need someone like you. Here, let me give you some money so you can pay your rent and then we'll move you into this nice place and you can start giving speeches to crowds up in Harlem. You can come work with us and you can work a red shift. You know, as he opens that beer, (laughs) you can support it with a text because Zoroastrianism is all concerned with like the dualism of light and dark and they're all focused on black people. So like that's the one end of it. I made that one up completely. That's, you could, you could say, I mean... (laughs) Thanks, history degree. Uh, <laughs> Freddie Mercury was a Zoroastrian. That's all I know about them. 
But this is Redshift from Finback. It is a sour ale with cranberry and yuzu. This is a beer they have made several times, which is rare for Finback. Jimmy, not my do you favorite. want to take a second sip? Not my favorite. Do two sips? I, I, honestly, I don't like cranberries, but I couldn't pass up Redshift mm. working Maybe at you a need to let it place. Maybe you need to let it linger. Cranberries, no? I was trying to think. Is it, it's got to be a song I know. It's, it's not do bad. you have to? <laughs> do you have to? <laughs> it's not bad. It's definitely berry full. I don't know what that a yuzu like is. sounds like a slogan for like a Mountain Dew product. <laughs> it's berry full <laughs> of juice. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I'd say it's closer to a sour, like an old one, where they were kind of a little more sour than they are nowadays, where it's just like, this is just a fucking Capri Sun in a can. Cranberries are quite yeah. sour. Tart, but, but without, is the right word. You know, yeah, tart. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not bad. They've actually also made a blue shift uh, Finback. No, so well, that wouldn't have worked for this. Nerve, nerdy. That would be if we did Science. the novelization of Blue Streak with Martin Lawrence, <laughs> which I don't think exists, hopefully. <laughs> like, I want to see this movie, but I hopefully. can't see it. I better just read the book. Uh, <laughs> so he's now working for communism, a local communist group. Back before it was, this is before the Red Scare, really, so they weren't like hunted as they were. But they weren't well, popular. Okay, the they weren't first popular. Red Scare. It was like the it was like the Haymarket thing or whatever, right? Like, the, like the, the first teens? Red Scare really was like nineteen eighteen, nineteen oh, or okay, twenty. Yeah. It was like very, very. There was it's during, one like, right around World War One after the revolution. Well, right after, right, after the Russian Russian Revolution, uh, and was violently put down by the Boston chief of police named Calvin Coolidge. I knew it like that guy who then went on to be president. And had a pet raccoon at Wild President. <laughs> That's not what? a joke. That's real. He had a pet raccoon that <laughs> someone gave him, and he was like, I'll keep it. And he, he fucking uh, wa- like would walk it on a leash. That's and I so think weird. I'm pretty sure it was named Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has its own Wikipedia page. <laughs> Rebecca was a raccoon. That's as a prep by Calvin Cool. <laughs> that's odd i mean they're they're fun they're weird they got those creepy little hands now the most ridiculous thing though is how he got it someone sent it to him and you're like that's a weird gift they sent it for them to eat on thanksgiving and he's like you know what it's probably better as a <laughs> or a hat but that's not really that's so weird cooler guy than you thought though right a minute ago you're like he i mean he was talk. at a solid one before and now he's at like a two yeah, so well, cooler, you know, yes. He doubled. Uh, he doubled, doubled in, in estimation. He doubled in coolness. And it, yeah, eventually he bought a second raccoon. <laughs> Started a lifelong habit. Like he just and they like I guess they tried to mate them. They're like, let's this could be this is what we do post White House. <laughs> Start a raccoon farm. <laughs> like no one wants these, Cal. <laughs> Because you can't find them in the wild. Oh, wait. They're or maybe, well, it's just like the 20s. You're like, you know what? I bet in a few years those like Davy Boone hats are going to be popular and we'll be ready. Because <laughs> that was a big thing in the 50s. Just have to wait for television to be invented and then for little kids in the 50s. Cal was playing them. the long game. He knew. He's a fascinating trend. He's an unbelievably cheap man, Calvin Coolidge. I read his a bio head is a garbage eater. <laughs> Well, he was so cheap. So I was like, here, eat this thing. He's like, no, no, that'll do. My kids wanted a dog, but this is fine. <laughs> but back in his day, the presidents, 
like when the president had like a state dinner, the president paid for that out of their pocket as opposed to now. I can't imagine that they're like they're paying for that. That's totally out of some sort of budget. He would like at the end of the dinner, like how many how many loaves of bread did we eat this time? Okay, next time order only this many. <laughs> like fucking to the nickel to save money. His like biggest accomplishment was like I passed almost no laws. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, he ends up working for this like co- the Brotherhood, which is clearly the, the communists' party because they of, can't say they're New not York saying comrade every fourth word; they're saying brother instead. Well, at this point on, the rest of the book, eight percent of it is just the word brother. Because <laughs> every, every character, like, oh, let's ask Brother Jake. I don't know, Brother Tibbets and. What do you think, uh, brother Nesbit? Or they just everyone's brother, brother, brother. You're not my brother, brother. <laughs> it's just I'm not your brother, annoying. brother. I'm not your buddy, friend. <laughs> so he works for them, and they're so impressed with his speech that they're like, "All right, we're going to pay you a, what must have been a decent amount of money, sixty bucks a week, sixty bucks a week." He's like, "Holy shit, I am rich," and put you up in a place to live. And he's like, "All right, I'll, I guess I'll do it." And when they bring him by the clubhouse the guy's wife is like shouldn't he be a little blacker and they're like shut the fuck up dude blowing up my spot well they're all white guys and the clubhouse is there are there's a few black dudes but not not in like not in the decision making area he he meet meet clifton later the other black guy but they're all white dudes and they're going to this rich ass place where they're like hey where do you live? He's like, oh, I live, I'm staying in a, a person's house. She rents a room. Like, oh, you can't stay there. We have secrets and people can't hear. Do you owe her any rent? And he's like, uh, a lot. And they're like, here's $300. That's the GDP of Germany right now. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, okay, I'll take it. It's right after the war. It They've pretty been much was GDP. Yeah. 300 US dollars was about, <laughs> is about 6 trillion Reichsmarks, <laughs> whatever the Deutschmarks were they were using at the time. So he's like, these people are loaded. Uh, I don't give a shit. I will deal with it. Uh, and then they want him to make a speech at some rally. And with no prep at all, with no, not even like, hey, this is what we're about. They're like, here, you're going to make the closing speech at this convention. And he does. And he makes a really, he gets the crowd going crazy. And they're really in support of him talking about the movement. And he just kind of like picked up things he heard the other speaker say. And then afterwards, all the commie guys are mad at him. Like, that was the worst speech ever, dude. Because that wasn't scientific. <laughs> the science of communism. <laughs> That's really this constant. Like, we are scientific and rational. And I even took a note in the book. They're like, we don't want to win people over with their emotions. We want to do it with their minds. Like, well, that's why you don't win elections, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they're all mad at him. And then they send him to like, uh, like a... It's only like a paragraph, but basically a, mon- a training montage to learn about communism. <laughs> where you can imagine what it was like, you know, like he's his like with his Marxist sensei, and you know he keeps getting things wrong. Like they have a pile of things, and he takes more for himself than the other guys. Like no, he hits him with something, and they try it again. Hits him on the hand with a ruler. And he like runs up a bunch of stairs, <laughs> but he's like, no, you're going too fast. You go as slow as that other guy. <laughs> And then at the end, he gets he divides the pile of walnuts equally or something. Like that'd be an amazing training montage. It's implied. It happened. And yeah, it did. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a literary thing. It doesn't really translate to books. Uh, the montage thing, but so the main character is getting like he he's getting some respect. People are responding to him because they're preaching them not preaching, but they're like making these speeches in Harlem, and he's actually black, and people are responding to him, and he immediately 
the, all, the other guys basically get jealous. Oh, you're going to go work downtown and, and talk about the woman question. Which is, where are the women? <laughs> and then he goes, he's working downtown. I didn't exactly say where, but... And then one of the women is like, oh, wants to fuck him. And does. Teach me more about your communism. And she's... <laughs> I With like your wiener. She basically is saying things like, uh, I can find them. They're really funny. Um, like she, it, it it escalates very very quickly in the uh, their exchange. Let me seize your means of production. It's basically that she's. <laughs> I was like, I like this. It was. Oh, it's always a thrill to hear you speak. Somehow you convey the great throbbing vitality <laughs> of the movement. He's <laughs> like, well, yes, I. You know, it's it's when it's excited, and then and she's like, and. And the girthy redistribution <laughs> of property, like she said, girthy. No, she didn't. Okay, it's like, it's like wow. The first one sense. was real. <laughs> I just want to go balls deep on the proletariat. <laughs> but she's married, and he's like, "Aren't you? Aren't you worried about your husband?" And she's like, "Well, he's he's away in Chicago. Don't worry, he he you know he won't be here." So they fuck, and then <laughs> the husband comes home, and the husband is just like, "Hey, sweetie." All right, I'm going to go over to bed here. now. I'm going to sleep over here. Yep. Try not to bang too loudly. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> and then, and then uh, the narrator's like, "Did that fucking happen?" Is that, Which that is a what dream? we find ourselves asking yeah. for much of this book. And then you never—I don't think you ever get a real answer. He just leaves. You're <laughs> like, <laughs> he he just leaves. He's afraid for a while that people are going to find out that this happened, that he's banging this guy's wife. But this rich, kind of older white lady, because she has gray hairs and shit. Mm-hmm. Like she, she she's a cougar. The term MILF didn't exist yet. Yeah, but she's, she's, maybe the husband was like, was, you know, a cuckold. Um, They're just old timey swingers. Do you know, by the way, you know, like the stupid terms, and this is not, not this is a, something, this sounds like something Jimmy would make up, but it's true. You know, those things like a pride of lions and shit like that. A like collective group of, nouns? Collect, yeah. Terms of venery. The, uh, the group of cuckolds is an incredulity. <laughs> Which is pretty great because, like, incredulous, like, you don't believe it. Like, <laughs> wouldn't you not want to believe that your wife is, this is a fucking real one another or like one dude? Of those James Lipton ones. No, it's a real one from like the 1500s. Did this happen enough that they had to prefer doing groups? I mean, I guess if you want to like, insult a whole bunch of dudes at once, because, <laughs> like, like, you know, calling someone a cuckold is insulting. That would be effective. Yeah, it's pretty insulting. Yeah. Unless that's it. Unless that's your thing. Shakespearean. So then he leaves, and you're like, what the fuck was that? And then and, uh, Allison's like, who knows? And then you move on. <laughs> and then he goes back to Harlem, and he's in his Harlem office, and brother Clifton, right? He was gets his, sent back because was, yeah. bro- eventually... So he got, like, banished from, from Harlem because some other guy was mad, jealous, and said he was... Like, just seeking for his own benefit, not for the brotherhood and all this shit. And they, we have to, the committee has to investigate. And the committee is just a bunch of fucking douche, douchey fucking guys. And um, they call him back for something else. And he's like, oh, they fucking know I fucked that white lady. <laughs> uh, I'm in trouble. So he gets there late. And they're like, what were you doing? He's like, oh, I was working on my speech for tomorrow about that woman problem. Like, oh, you didn't waste your, wasted your time, dude, because you're done with that. You're going back to Harlem. Because we don't know what happened to Brother Clifton, who we never talked about. Brother Clifton was the other... I mean, there were other black people working with the, the Brotherhood, but he was, like, the other, like, young man that he met that was cool and good-looking and charismatic. And he's just vanished now. I don't know if it mattered, but they it made wasn't, a, wasn't he the one that was on the chain that was gang brother for no, 19 years? Brother Tarp. 
Oh, right, yes. And that's like the whole thing that why the other guy snitched him out. Ultimately, Brother Tarp gave uh, the narrator like a link of the chain gang, you know, chain that he had broken off of himself to escape from the, from the South. And, and this other dude's like, you shouldn't have that out. That's going to upset people. This isn't about race. This is about class and class struggle. And uh, that's that's the wrong idea. And then he snitched out, um, he snitched out the narrator and said he was a self-aggrandizing prick um, because that guy was a douche. And so ultimately he goes there, like, go find Brother Clifton. But everyone's, like, cold to the narrator. Like, no one's, like, talking to him. He's not involved in the decisions anymore. But he finds Clifton on the street. He's selling little Sambo Oh, dolls. whoa. <laughs> Jesus fucking that's Christ, the it's called- Nate. In the book, that is oh literally the name God, of the book. Oh my God, this is an educational podcast. <laughs> I mean, we'll bleep it out. We'll bleep, bleep out your hate speech. On oh the my God, this isn't <laughs> Stormfront, Nate. What are you doing? <laughs> Maybe that's okay in New Hampshire, but not here. <laughs> but he is yeah, selling so, them. <laughs> he's selling them. And they are little like, puppets, which is, of course, yet another metaphor, I'm sure. Uh, and there's like a metaphor within this because... They're dancing, and he's like, come, buy the dancing stupid thing. And then you find out later that they weren't really dancing. It's He's pulling the string. It's like he's literally puppeteering yeah. it. It's not like a self... It's not like some sort of like wind-up to- doll or something. So you're like, what does that all mean? Doesn't Maybe matter. The cops out. shoot him. Well, he, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's like... They're, then they're, like, you know, cause they're clearly selling shit on the street. They're not supposed to be doing that. The cops are hustling them out, and... The narrator is trying to kind of catch Clifton and like, dude, what the fuck happened? Why did you leave the Brotherhood? Why are you selling shit on the street? And he sees the cops pushing him, and the cop and the cop says something, uh, and then they they get into a fist fight, and the cop shoots him. And uh, he goes over, and then the cops are they're like, your buddy's dead, pal. <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> and uh, then they have a funeral for him, and it's like a big thing in the narrator's mind for the for the brotherhood they had this big public funeral people marching through the streets with like a drum corps and shit like that and he makes a long speech um but he doesn't talk about the communism no he just talks about race and he talks uh he keeps saying and this is not me trying to make a euphemism but he says like the cop called him something that rhymed with trigger and you're like oh jeez okay that's literally what it says yeah and he's like and a, mm-hmm. the cop might think he's a poet, and like he has like these great lines, like the fucking like Muhammad Ali of of eulogies. <laughs> he's just like <laughs> saying these like witty things. Like, where was this in the beginning of the book? That's what I didn't understand about the character. You know, in the beginning of the book, he can't even say anything, and now he could whip up a crowd into a frenzy. Well, he was making a speech in the very beginning of the book. He the, his like valedictorian speech. Oh yeah. But then, but he couldn't defend himself. He couldn't get a word in with the principal, uh, president guy. Well, I think he was always. He does say a lot early on. He's always trying to like be a suck up, kind of to anyone in power, or like be the good boy, or you know, just do whatever he's got to do to get ahead for his own life. It includes like doing whatever his superiors tell him to. And so when he's when he's talking to crowds, he's good at that. But when someone he thinks is you know superior to him in some way, he will not. He won't sass him because he's got to, you know, lay low and just do the right thing. And that way, is that's how he's going to come into the power he so rightly deserves or he feels he deserves. So ultimately, the party gets mad at him for this speech 
because he makes it not about the cause their their cause and then he finds out he's like well by the way like what the fuck i was out of harlem for a few months and it sucks now like you have no presence there and everyone's everyone's abandoned it and they're like oh there's you know the committee has its reasons they give you like cryptic bullshit answers and he's like, all right, well, this is, but I have, I have information. Like, I'm a fucking black person. Like, I could tell you stuff, like, that you're clearly not seeing. And like, no, the party understands. I've heard that nobody gives a shit about you. That's what he says. Like, to shut them. your mouth. And he says, you can't see it. And the guy's like, you're right. And then his eyeball fucking pops out of his head. <laughs> that guy was waiting for the, just the right moment, <laughs> the whole book. Like, every once in a while, I'm like, I don't think it's clear. And he's like, oh, not gonna, that's not the right time. <laughs> <laughs> Look over there. Mm, I don't know if this is the Keep right time. Keep an eye on it. Oh, so close. <laughs> Keep your eyes peeled. Oh, shit, I only got the one. <laughs> that's Jack. His eyeball pops out, and they're like, whoa, dude, not cool. We were drinking here. <laughs> it's like, I lost this for the cause. Like, well, you fucking, you suck, because all you did was write pamphlets. Like, how did... You got a bad what paper cut. What kind of a paper cut did you get from this paper? <laughs> did you ever have the entire Communist Manifesto thrown in your eye? It's not cool, dude. They're like, you do what I, we say. And he's like, you know what? Fuck these guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I want. And is this when he's like, I'm going to go fuck one of their wives and yeah. find information out? Well, <laughs> yeah. He says, I want to find out what's really going on. I know their wives. And so he tries to hit on one doesn't really work but then another one is very interested oh she's very into- i haven't uh, this is a this is not the best connection but he's like you know what that'll feel pretty cathartic spears <laughs> called catharsis uh it is also from treehouse and it is an american porter it does not say on the can what percent alcohol it is but it is a quote-unquote robust porter so like you know what it'll feel really good to go find out the real shit about the party and like fuck them up like now I now I hate them and I want to seven point four percent. Why did I even bother? <laughs> Use this to wash my dishes. Uh, and that's actually quite good. It's it's a lot thinner than the imperial stout kind of things. But if you like lighter porters, this is great. Catharsis. So he's like, yeah, I'm gonna go fuck the guy's wife, and that that's Emma. And all she he does, does is he, like, talk about her fucking black Sybil. fantasies. Oh, no, that's Sybil. That's who he ends up going to bang. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I wrote, I, can't, I got some notes from this. This is like, oh, my goodness. I got to write that down. Where she's like, I have a thing. I have like a black rape fantasy. And he's like, oh, okay. And he's trying to get her drunk so she'll talk. And she says, don't drink too much, beautiful. It always takes the pep out of George, I guess meaning her husband. And he goes, don't worry. I rapes real good when I'm drunk. Like, oh, fucking Jesus Christ. And then he writes on like, in lipstick on her belly, you were raped by Santa Claus. Surprise. <laughs> and this is the scene in the book. Where I'm like, okay, I don't really know what's, <laughs> I don't even know what to, this can't, was, was this just put here as like, see what I can get away with? Like, what is the point of that? But anyway, he gets ultimately cock blocked by the I party. I really don't know. Commies will do that to you. Uh, they call up and like, oh, sh- oh, we will, you know, we, to- we never talked about like the Rastafarian. Well, he'll come like, up the, next. The, the Caribbean, the Caribbean black national. Ross the exhorter. 
exhorter who is clearly like the son of Marcus Garvey, the <laughs> Caribbean guy. Yeah, whose whose dialogue is written in, you know that like all it's basically all the same it's except it's just all the A's are A-H's. Well, he's like man, yeah, instead of man. <laughs> so he's to make him sound like he's from the Caribbean. Yeah, and he's he's like the black national. He's like no. We should, you know, don't work with the white people. And they have some scuffles and they have some, you know, throughout. And that's where this leads to here. He's literally with Sybil and they're about to fuck. But then the phone rings and he picks up the phone and it's like, you, you've got to get up to Harlem. You've got to get here. And he can hear like glass breaking in the background. It's like, oh, no, what's happening? So he's like, oh, I got to go. So he tries to leave and Sybil tries to go with him. And he has to like get. She like wants him bad, uh, and she he has to do like three different things to get her. First, he puts her in a car, puts her in a cab, and gives the cabbie his last five dollars. Says, "Bring her home," and then he gets on the bus to Harlem. He gets to Harlem, and Sybil's there. He's like, "No, no, I want to go with you." I mean, he's <laughs> on his way to Harlem, and he's like, "No, I want to go with you." He's like, "What are you doing here?" And he puts her in another cab and says, "Do not." Let her out. Do not let her out anywhere except her home. So he eventually gets to Harlem, and there's, it's it's a riot. I mean, it is a, it's a full blown riot with Roz like the destroyer looting. called now the destroyer riding a horse and dressed as an Abyssinian king and holding a spear. Yeah, but before okay, before he meets them though, they're like, uh, the, you see, he's just looking out on the street. There are people that like all the shops have been broken into. People are stealing all the stuff. There are guys wheeling a safe down the street and they're being shot at by the police. And one of them gets shot and dies. Uh, and then another one is like, everybody come with me. So the main character goes with them and they literally get all this like gasoline. And then it's like that place that he points at the tenement building. We're going to burn it down. He sends it, go get everybody, tell everybody to leave and go start dumping the gasoline in the top floors and start lighting lighting it when I give you the signal. And so they literally light the whole thing. They just burn down their own, like, tenement building. And, and one guy's like, what? Don't you live there? He's like, you call that living? And so they burn it down. He's still, but also the main character, he's carrying the briefcase, the thing that he got at the very beginning it's of the book. It's literally the baggage he has to carry with him. It's, it's come up many different <laughs> scenes that we just never talked and about. It, it accumu- it's accumulated a bunch of weird shit that comes up at it the has, end. It has, it has the broken... Uh, the broken like, chain gang Minstrel... Uh, uh, the Sambo doll. Piggy bank. The, 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 the minstrel bank and his high school diploma. So uh, they like he, he participates in like spreading the gasoline and burning down the building, and he grabs his... You know, and he almost forgets his briefcase in the fire, but he grabs it. He goes back in and grabs it and, and leaves. And then out on the street is Roz, the, Al Ghul. Now the destroyer. And he's like spe- on a riding a horse and he's spearing people. Um, and, he's, and, and he's pointing. He recognizes the main character as that guy, you know, from the communists and says, get him. Everybody get him. So the main character like runs away and manages to get away. And there are police and police are being killed. And it's pretty crazy. But he gets chased uh, down the street, and he falls in an open manhole, basically. Yeah. yeah. Where where coal is being stored, and the guys who are chasing him are like, oh, we can't really, like, see him down there, or we can't, like, get to him. Screw it. Let's just, like... Let's just close, put it, the manhole, close him in there. 
Yeah, just close them in there. So uh, he gets closed in, and the main character's like, I was so tired, I just went to sleep. And when I woke up, I had three matches, but I had nothing to... But I needed something to, like, use as a torch. All I had was the stuff in my briefcase. So I used my high school diploma as a torch. I lit it on fire so I could see what was going on. And this is basically like, and I was down there for a couple days, and I'm still down there. And then it sort of like loops back to the beginning, more or less really the very beginning of the the, the book. It's like, this is why I'm hiding underground, because they stuffed me in here. And now I'm just kind of staying, because nobody sees me. Now I'm the invisible man. Credits. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a big question mark. Okay, so that's the plot. Now for analysis. It's a metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) There were some of those. There's a lot of metaphors. Just did you guys ever see the movie Mother with Albert Brooks? No, Uh, different. That's a different film. Doesn't apply here, but also enjoyable. No, this is the one um, from a few years ago with Jennifer Lawrence and uh, that's uh, Javier Bardem. I think it was. I think it was Aronofsky. No, it takes place in like a house, and they're in the house, and they increasingly weird stuff happens over like the course of the thing. And it all happens like kind of like, like a long single event, like a stream of consciousness thing where it just escalates endlessly until there's a full blown war inside this house with like people blowing up and dying. And it's a allegory or something for climate change. I don't really know, but <laughs> that's kind of what this felt like where it, like you can tell, like I know this is all, it all means something and it's all, happening and everything that happens represents something and it gets increasingly weird until the end when it just goes full weird and you're just like I don't know what the fuck I just read you have to do a lot of learning on the outside I fucking went to spark notes and I read the entire spark notes analysis which is you know good enough for me really honestly uh and it did explain a lot I'm sure there's a lot more to it than the spark notes version but this was not a straightforward book no it definitely reminded me a bit of beloved mm. in the way that it's just like really hard to follow it's just written in a way though this is less hard to follow than beloved because that was just super yeah. weird or written in a way that was deliberately difficult to follow but this was almost as bad but it actually also reminded me a lot of the goldfinch for some reason or at least the way it's written it reminded me I of the goldfinch that. yeah well i think because it goes through this like random things that seem unconnected and he's just kind of dragged along by forces beyond his control. That was kind of like the whole point of uh, the goldfinch. And it was a super long book. It was quite long. <laughs> didn't, did not need to be as long as it was. That's for sure. This was, um, I found this, Ellison himself sent a letter to his literary agent. It's like, this is what the book is going to be about. And this is what he wrote. He said, The Invisible Man will move upward through Negro life, coming into contact with its various forms and personality types, will operate in the Negro middle class in the left-wing movement, and ascend again into this disorganized atmosphere of the Harlem underworld. He will move upward in society through opportunism and submissiveness. Psychologically, he is a traitor to himself, to his people, and to democracy. He is also to be a depiction of a certain type of Negro humanity that operates in the vacuum created by white America and its failure to see the Negroes as human. So, I mean... I didn't get exactly that when I was reading it, but I could tell, like, if, you know what it reminded me of? I, I was thinking of this. Um, I never actually read it with you guys because you did it before I was in the thing, but uh, the Underground Railroad, where each 
stop they make. Each section, each section was a unique yeah. thing, and it was commentary on a specific historical event or group of people. Each one was like a different way the states dealt with slavery or getting out of slavery or something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, we missed that when we read that, though. This one was like each place he went was kind of like a a way that I guess he felt like black people could get out of, you know, just the shitty surroundings they were in, like either through school or didn't work out for school. So he goes to vocational stuff and he goes to work, get a job and it doesn't work out. And then, oh, he joins the communist movement, which is, you know, political radicalism. And it's just like the various methods by which they feel like they can free themselves and how that doesn't happen. Well, because in a lot of, a lot of the, no, I think that's, I think there's something to that. In a lot of the cases, like those other movements are either, work with the black people but like for the movement's leaders own motives and the black people are just kind of like a tool or they work against the black people specifically like like the labor movement in the early 20th century was fucking super racist yeah there were a lot of the union rules were like you should join the union because they'll protect you from having to work with black people yeah i mean and even more than just the black people thing like uh, was it the Chinese Exclusion Act? One of the biggest f- people pushing for that were labor unions. Yeah, like oh, we don't want Chinese people taking our jobs. You know, like they were, yeah, you know, and also like Irish people and Black people and whatever. You know, they were they were equal opportunity offenders. Anyone <laughs> who would work for less money, yeah, exactly. Anyone who willing to work for less money was a threat to the labor unions. Not to not to shit on on the labor movement per se, but. And I think ultimately it's super complicated, like the social history of all these groups because you have different people looking for different things. Like as as we said earlier, like it's not like there's just one monolithic black culture in America. Even within the book, the other black people he meets are like, "Oh, you're from the South, right? Oh, you don't. That's the different than what we do here in the North." You eat like, yams. Well, <laughs> no, but they do say it all. Like, "Oh, he's a Northern guy. Oh, he's a Southern person. You know how they are," which I. I don't understand that because I'm not a black person from the north or the south. But that's a you know the the group groups are divided, and I think he would say that like, they say at certain points and they're like they're basically divided. Uh, uh, the narrative says it in like some of his like speeches to the crowds. Uh, the first one, the first speech he makes when he's like, "We are uh, shit." He's like, "They think we're stupid. They think we're not special, but we are special because we're the only ones that let them do this to us." And we let them divide us and we let them trample on us. And we let them, he says, use our empty heads as a spittoon and our back as a doormat. I remember that line. That the powers that be that want to keep things the way they are have a benefit uh, or have an incentive to to break up and divide groups of people so they squabble amongst each other and can't actually get anywhere on their get together. I think that's a big part of the book here too. And it clearly worked because... Everybody does fight and squabble amongst each other. You know, in, Har- in the riot in Harlem, they're burning down their own community. They're looting their own shops. But, dude, that's, that happens now. <laughs> yeah, that did, that did happen. That hap- I mean, it happen- summer. happened in 2020 a lot, but it happened in other years, too. That happens. And... Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know the reason. Like, there's like convoluted, you know, education, educated, you know, like college educated, PhD type explanations for why this has happened. Why would people destroy their own fucking homes? 
Um, and I guess he's offering some explanation here, or his his explanation for why why these communities just can't get their shit together. You know, what people looking outside, like, why can't they just figure this out? Like, why are they fighting it? Because it's not it's not them. You know, it's their there's these other forces at play. Apparently, by the end, I don't remember exactly why, but the communists, the Brotherhood, was basically the ones behind the riots. So they they had like stepped out of Harlem, so Ra's al Ghul could take over. <laughs> Ra's <and> al Ghul, <laughs> yeah. That guy would create the uh, you know whatever the crisis because he was saying violent. He was he was a violent, and then that would galvanize the people behind the Brotherhood's cause. I think that's what the plan was, or or it would discredit. The other guy, it would be, the violence would discredit them partly, or they would just get killed. Sure, maybe they would be seen as the ones who kept order. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Basically, they were, they were using the narrator. No, they were every everyone was trying to use him and, by extension, metaphor, whatever, black people to get what they wanted. Yeah, and they weren't necessarily using it to get what black people wanted. It seems, and he continually felt. Like, any time he tried to exercise any kind of individuality, they would beat him back into just being a black stereotype or an archetype. Yeah. An archetype is one that's good at designing buildings, right? Is that what that one is? Yeah. You go to college for that archetyping. Nice. I liked the book. I don't know what I'm supposed to take from it, but it did, it did feel at certain points very timely. Like, and we're, this is for February of 2021. This episode's coming out, but... In 2020, there were like, I don't know, six months of civil unrest in America or close to it uh, about the issue of race. 60 years after, over almost 70 years, really, after this book came out. So uh, as much as I think, I think we could all agree that it's undeniable that progress has been made in some respects. There's plenty of room for growth, to put it very very mildly uh (laughs) and some people feel that you know this book like you could see all of the different aspects of the book like the things that are points out these kind of groups acting this way or that way they're still kind of around in maybe slightly different forms but it still it felt very still of the moment in many ways okay of the since this is our third one our third black history month book um the other ones being Native Son and uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Which one did you like the best? <sighs> they're, they're all difficult books. They are, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, that's an inter- interesting thing. Like, now, that, now that I realize these are the three books. That we picked these three books basically looking at a list of famous books by black writers. These are three of the biggest of this, like, genre era and you know i I, i'm glad we read them they're all super famous and and respected books and you know essential reading for anyone who wants to be a well-read person which uh we we are we're already well well drinked persons so we were trying to work on the the reading part well Um, well drunk drunken drunken drankened drank we haven't we haven't read enough to know the (laughs) the words (laughs) Superlator um, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Poo perfect. Um, Not after all this beer. 
They were all different and they're all difficult. Well, so the thing I would just say is like they're all critically revered for generations now, you know? And that's great. Like I think I think we all like that kind of a book here and there. But these are fucking hard books that require um time. Time, yeah, and and knowledge that we don't necessarily have if if you're even if you're like we're educated people, like we went to fucking we all have master's degrees and like we should why don't I know what the fuck this is about? You know, like because it's not really taught all that much. It, it, they're just difficult books, and they're none of them are the kind of book that I would ever say like, oh, go pick up that book and read it. <laughs> like, they're all Definitely like, not. do you do you want to challenge and you want to like grow as a reader and a person? Then you read that kind of book. So it's hard to compare them with that, you know, knowing that these are not like beach reads. They're all the kind of book that you kind of feel like you should have to read another book about each book before you read it or after. And then maybe you'll get it. They're the kind of books that I need a, a Sherpa for, you know, it's someone someone to talk you through it. And like, all right, chapter 23, like what the fuck just happened there? Like, let me tell if this is we need to now read this other thing and let's talk about hold oh, my hand. Now I get please. it. Kind of, please yeah. Please hold my yeah. hand because like this one I thought I thought this one was probably the most interesting knowing that I understood about 30% of it. Like I know I knew I was missing things on every fucking page and the, the, I read his stuff about it like afterwards. Like I saw someone's random fucking comment online somewhere where it's like, well, clearly when he's in the Chthonian or whatever the fuck the the Kami bar Chthonian yeah uh, there's a painting on the wall and it's a, a matador and it's because the matador is swinging the red cape in front of the bull because the red cape is distracting the bull the black bull the red flag of communism is like it's just an, it's not really the target it's like fuck is it god damn it it might be and like shit like that like there's stuff Throughout this, that I was like, I'm sure that means something, but I don't know what it is. When you know that the writer became a literature professor for the next 40 years, yeah, you're like, fuck, there is no accidental word here. This could <laughs> have like re- an infinite just level series of footnotes. Oh, it's about a, a, a one twelfth of the book. Those footnotes. <laughs> I I agree that this was this one had like the most interesting plot. Once you got past the first quarter of the book, yeah, that was brutal. As the, the first quarter of the book, like I could not read more than like ten pages without falling asleep because like this is too difficult. I don't know what's happening and I don't care. I'm going to go to sleep. I actually had the opposite thought really? uh, the first quarter. I mean, the first quarter was difficult for sure, but I was able to at least like keep up with what was going on and then but after once you got a little bit later i was finally like i fucking i can't this is too hard i'm just (laughs) i just didn't have the concentration left to try and i really did get confused like in the middle i definitely had to go back a bunch i'm like fuck i'm just i'm just gonna read this this big chunk again because i really i was reading it and i really was like i have no idea what is happening? How did we get here? What is this? So at some point I like missed something important somewhere around 25% of the way through. And then I was like, I don't know what is going on. Maybe Jimmy and me uh, just didn't follow. We followed even less because we thought we were understanding it. <laughs> well, once he stopped moving around and any of different, different uh, locations and scenarios, like, Oh, this high school. And then he was in college and then he was in another place. And it, the, you know, the factory and it was like, once he, once he got to like the communist place, and it was kind of like static. I could kind of like grab a hold of what the fuck was going on. But this was the kind of book that like, we read this 
in less than a week. We read this in a few days. And this is the kind of book that you should read like one or two chapters a day. Let it settle in. I read half of this today. <laughs> I'm, surpri- I'm surprised you're alive. I read almost half of it today Jesus. myself. Also. Yeah, it's, it's, this is not a book that you can or should, should rush, rush through. through at all. No. Not none of them were. They were all hard. They were all hard. This one was the most interesting. I think I liked Go Tell on the Mountain best. I don't know, no reason in particular. I just, I just liked that one in terms of just like, it's nice. Not nice. It was obviously horrific, but. It was the least horrific in many ways, though. In many ways. And Native Son was brutal. Native Son was, yeah, Native Son was, uh, still, I still don't fucking get that one. I'm, I don't think I ever will. I re- yeah, that one we talked about, yeah. I don't understand the point of Native Son. This, I, I, I think I did like this one the best, actually. Once I got into it, once I got about a third of the way through, I was like, okay, there's now I get at least something of what's happening. I mean, this is considered, I think, isn't this basically considered like the best one? Like the most renowned, certainly. Yeah, it's just considered like one of the best novels of the 20th century period, not just by a black writer, but just in general. Yeah. So, but the other ones are also, of course, extremely highly yeah. revered or whatever, too. I liked I liked this best just because like stuff was happening even if I didn't always understand it and there were like long sermons and into you know intellectual probing parts where he's just like oh what am I thinking right now and there's ten pages and you're like, I don't know if you don't know what you're thinking then I'm fucked I, I think I like this one best I feel like I didn't actually enjoy reading any of them because they're all difficult it wasn't they weren't fun reads but especially back to back yeah. Probably I liked this one the best. Or more like, I think this, or a different way to say it is, this is probably the best written. Uh, that's, that's more like the way I would say it. It's the most literary. Yeah. Not that Go Tell on the Mountain wasn't, because that's also, you know, well-written. That one sure, was but, more prosy. And it wasn't, it, that one didn't have much of a plot. I mean, it was like also, a collection of short stories. Interconnected. Yeah, whereas this is more a specific story about one person which is more like what a novel usually is yeah. it just kind of jumped from random thing to random thing it, it was one of the more challenging things we've had to read i think and I'm, yeah. i think this is one of the ones that if i ever wanted to reread something this would probably be one of them because now that i've read a you know a, a child summary on spark notes about what it's really about i feel like i get more out of it but I'll probably never do that just because there's so many other things we have to read. <laughs> I, th- I think with this, what I would need is like a, a heavily annotated edition. Like the Shakespeare like, where it translates on both pages. Or if it's just like, you know, there's like uh, 500 other pages of shit. So I understand Marcus Garvey and I understand Booker T. Washington and I understand Harlem and then, you, you know, mean like the a history minor in. Kind of, yeah, like context. a whole bunch of articles to explain these things, to put it in its context. Then I'd be like, oh, now I get this. It would, it would it's, you know, it's like going to a fucking art museum. Like you go look at a painting, and you're like, okay, it's a fucking painting. That's a good flower. And it's, for me at least, it's boring and stupid. But if you get into the history of how art, how each like movement in art changed, why it changed, who was doing it and, and what they were doing differently and why they were doing that differently, it becomes a little more interesting. It's like, oh, this isn't just a painting of a flower. He's doing this because 
they had reached the height of realism and photographs existed. So they suddenly said, well, how do we get past that? Oh, we have to do the feeling that a flower gives someone as opposed to just what a picture of a flower actually looks like. So like, okay, that's a little more interesting. It provides like why this different, not just like, oh, they used a blurry painting of a flower. So shit like this is like, it's good. You can tell it's good. You know, like, wow, he's good at this. But having the knowledge behind it makes it make way more sense. And you really can appreciate it more. Without it, it's just like, yeah, he wrote it good. He got some pretty words. So do you have any interest in reading his other unfinished novel that's been published in two different forms? I, I don't think so. Have you, no. looked in, have you looked into it? It's been published under two names. I forget the second one, but one is Juneteenth. Malph Fellison? <laughs> oh, two different book names. Okay. I hate you, I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's Ralph, but it's spelled like the British way. It's like, Ranulph? <laughs> so I did see that he does have two different books, but it's actually the same book, just published twice. But it's because he didn't actually publish it when he was alive. And someone else is just, there's... He wrote 2,000 pages of book. So Jesus, people Jesus. edited, I mean, edited it down to like a, you know, a 400-page coherent thing. And that's called Juneteenth. And then there's a much longer thing, uh, version that I fucking forget what that's called. June 20th. June 3th. Uh, <laughs> that's just a terrible name. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's called Three Days Before the Shooting. That's what it's called. Yeah, Juneteenth is, it's like 1,100 pages. They, they trimmed it down. Jesus Christ. That's twice as long as this. Jesus. That's, that's, that's a lot of book. I feel like if he died and he think it wasn't ready for the world, I'll respect that. Because it's also, people say it's not very good. Probably because he didn't fucking finish writing it. That's going to be true. I think that's going to be true for just about anybody's unfinished work. Especially if, the, if they didn't produce that much else. You know, if it's like Tom Clancy's unfinished book and like, oh, he had 41 other books and here's this other one about a fucking submarine in Russians. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, I get where he was going here. A book we should do someday, by the way. If we do one, we have done all of them, so. So, but if he had fucking, you know, one fucking book, like just one novel, that's what he wrote. And he published some essays, and that was basically it. This other giant, like, there's nothing to, it just doesn't like fit in anywhere, this other book. Like, it's just going to be weird. Same thing with like. Prince. Uh. Well, Prince put out so much fucking crap. But, but he yeah, has, he, has, he like, has a billion albums in a vault in his Minneapolis lair. And they're Hazley like, we're going to fucking get as much money out of this dead guy as we can. Dude, Jimi Hendrix's estate still releases songs every now and then. <laughs> we found a recording of Jimmy on the, on the toilet. It's called a Hot Deuce Riff number two. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to think of another Jimi Hendrix know, song like, real fast. I can't think of any. Nate, you probably know more, actually. Message of Fudge. Uh, <laughs> Message of Love. Oh, that's a good song. Uh, I don't even know that song. I, I only know, know like three Hendrix songs. Third Bowl from the Sun. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. finally thought of one. I guess it depends on the order you count them in. Hey, Joe. Bring more toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't write that one. It was a cover. I know, I know. I know. That's all right. So is pooping. We didn't invent that. 
Axis, bold as love. <laughs> so yeah, I think the, the fact that he, I mean, it's also like he has this one masterpiece, right? This 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 is considered wonder. this is considered a masterwork. It's not, but it's not. It's different than a one hit wonder because one hit wonders are people they had only one thing that landed well. But they have tons of crap. Like Aha has like twenty albums. Uh, it's not crap. There's some gems there. That one Bond song they did, but the Living Daylights. You know, They've got. I yes, saw them exactly. in concert, man. They still got it. Yeah, well, you, you take on them, but they had one hit song. It's like La Bamba. Everyone, no one that else. That guy made La Bamba, and then he died in a plane crash. This guy just taught at college for forty years. It sort of is, yeah. Like you're like you can't really, you know, it's not like it's not like there's other shit to sift through. It's like this is the only thing. So the other book, Harper Lee. Is another one who she wrote one thing, yep, and then that that you know won the the Pulitzer Prize, and she was super famous and beloved, and then and beloved. Sorry, she didn't write beloved. That's a totally different thing. Uh, and then she never really wrote anything again. And then she was when she was almost dead, but too <laughs> senile to say no. She's too old to die. <laughs> When she was almost dead, her somebody you know, like conned her and conned her into. Okay, can we publish that other thing, which was really the first draft of Mockingbird? And that that's the was? only other thing she has. She that, said that was, ah! it, and they're like, "That's a yes." Make your mark. Go set a watchman is basically the first draft of oh. of To Kill a Mockingbird, is. and they and she that's what she submitted to an editor, and the editor said, "Oh." Well, you know what? This part about the kid—that's good. You should make a book. You should make that the focus of the book, and that turned into Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, I thought it was a completely different thing. But but I then when she was ninety years old, somebody they published—you know—go. I could exploit this old lady. Set a watchman. Yeah, I think she was like bald, uh, blind, or I was gonna say bald. I think she was. She might have been, <laughs> been bald too. I think she was blind already. She was like blind and senile and a thousand. And well, that is her. just cool. We should do that book one day. I, I've never, I've not read it. I'm sure it's, I've heard it's fucking awful. Well, it's a first draft. <laughs> not. It's like reading Juneteenth is like, he wasn't good with this being out there. I'm going to take his word for it. Because there's plenty of authors like, I wrote this amazing thing. And they're like, no, nah, dude, that stuff sucks. If the author's like, this stuff sucks, I'd be like, I believe you. But the question, it might, I mean, it might have been that Ellison, it's not that he wasn't okay with it, but he might have just been, like a perfectionist, and I have to imagine he was sweated over it forever. Well, if you write one book and you win the fir- and you're the first black person to win the National Book Award, yeah, you, it's really hard to top that. He he did say when he accepted his or reflecting on accepting his National Book Award for Invisible Man, he said, "I he said something to the effect like I made a good attempt or I made a real attempt at a novel, but I'm not satisfied with it." This masterwork, as as far as critics are concerned, he's like, yeah, uh, it, it it wasn't perfect. Could have used the word brother so, a few more times, especially in the second half. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first half could have used it a lot more because it wasn't there at all. So I guess our only dilemma now is, what the fuck do we do next year for Black History Month? That's a problem for a year. Oh, from now. there are plenty of things. <laughs> there are plenty of other black. So part of the thing I, I think we, I mean, not that we like shot our load here or anything, but. We picked really hard books by black writers. There are plenty of black writers who write things that are accessible and famous and great. Yeah. We just happened to pick the three like highest browest crap we could find 
And it's also, do we say learned a these lesson? Are, these are like books by black authors about the black experience from that era, whereas we could just say just pick black authors that do like like what, Ursula Le Guin is she right? No, she's not black. But there's, a, there's another Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler. Yeah. Who you're thinking yeah. of? She and uh, she's who won the Hugo? There's a uh, uh, fuck. Uh, N.K. Jemison. That's what I was she's thinking of. She's won it three Sci-fi times yeah. for like I, the uh, same series. And I read that. I, I liked it. Yeah. I thought it was good. She's like a black female sci-fi writer. She, there's not many of those. Yeah, she's like a uh, fucking unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> the black female sci-fi writer. Yeah. The, the award-winning black female <laughs> sci-fi writer. But she won like the Hugo three times. I think it's, that must be... That must be a record for now or close to it. But so there's other things we could do. There's plenty of the black I mean we also don't need to be assholes and just wait for February to read black writers, but we, and we have, have it. We've done another one. Shortest before. month to read black authors. And plus we lose one to uh, our <laughs> we shitty. Cheated them out novel. of one <laughs> for fucking E. L. James. <laughs> uh yeah. So certainly. But i you know, these these were like, if not the top three most well-known or, you know, most well-received or most, you know, quote-unquote important. They're in the top 10, all of them easily. Oh, yeah. So the question, I I have the usual question. Who should read them then? Only if you know what you're doing. Yep, this is a difficult one. And if you have a lot of patience and you don't mind, like, really picking up a book you have to really work through, then, yeah, this this is good. It's something to take your time with. But if you're just being like, I want to read a fun book, or I haven't read a book in a while, I'll read a book. Like, don't don't pick this. Just don't do it. You will you'll never want to read again. I'm like, oh, this is why I stopped reading. You know? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I agree with all that. Slightly less difficult than beloved, but still difficult. Difficult in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different a different thing for sure. Tell us what you thought. Send us an email to drunkeyesbookclub at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at DrunkGuysBC. Or go to Facebook and Instagram at Drunk Guys Book Club. And if you've listened this long, why not uh, leave us a review wherever you find the podcast? It'd really help us out. Just round up to five stars. One for each time, each hundred times they say the word brother in this novel. And check us out on Goodreads, where you can follow the things we are reading and read them with us if you like to be stalkers. I friend everybody. I, they I follow friend them us too. I have I so friend friend many back. internet friends. So many. Really? It's really nice. Dozens. Makes me feel less alone. (laughs) And check out the Hopped Up Network, a network of independent beer podcasters. And thanks for listening.